basically. Let's go around the horn, and I'll assume if you give me a go, you've got no instrumentation problems. Booster? Go flight. Retro? Go flight. Fighter? Go flight. Control? Telcom? Go. TNC? Econ? Capcom? Go. Surgeon? Go. OMP? Go. AFC? RAO? Go. Network? Go. You got everything up? Hello, I'm Ian Christie, and this is Terranauts. In the last episode of Terranauts, we had managed to get Gemini 8 off the launch pad. After a fallen winter spent wondering exactly what the plan for the mission was going to be as the Agena program struggled to get back to flight, and NASA had considered its options for what target to use for its second rendezvous and docking mission, the actual launch of Agena and then uh, the Gemini capsule itself had gone pretty much without incident. The worst moment in the countdown had actually come when the crew was being strapped into the capsule. As the ground crew was helping strap pilot Dave Scott into his parachute, they found that one of the catches was full of glue and they couldn't free it, so they couldn't get Dave Scott into his parachute. It was really just about as small a problem as you could have, but no parachute, no launch, and the clock was ticking. In the end, between Pete Conrad, the backup pilot whose job it was to strap Dave Scott in and contravent the longtime NASA pad leader, they managed to dig the glue out and free the catch so Scott could strap in. It was a reminder, though, at least momentarily, of just how many things had to go right and in the right order in order to get a space mission off the ground. It was a reminder of how you just can't afford to be complacent in this business, that in going to space, you're not only as good as your last mission, you're really only as good as your current one. It wouldn't be the last of those reminders on Gemini 8. But the fact that we're discussing the incident, these almost 60 years later, should be an indication of just how well the rest of the launch process actually went. As we noted in the last episode, Agena launched successfully and inserted itself into a 300-kilometer circular orbit. And one orbit later, Gemini joined it on orbit, although in a slightly lower and more elliptical orbit. As soon as they were established on orbit, Commander Neil Armstrong and Scott began the process of rendezvous with Agena. Although various innovations had been proposed by the rendezvous team, in the end, Gemini 8 would use the now tried-and-true method of rendezvous that Gemini 6A had used to meet up with Gemini 7. The process would take almost four complete orbits and an elapsed time of a little bit more than six hours. As with the previous mission, the Gemini spacecraft launched into an orbit well behind Agena, using their lower orbit to begin the process of catching up to it. The perigee, or lowest spot in this orbit, was roughly over the Atlantic Ocean, where they'd been inserted into the orbit, which meant that their apogee was on the other side of the uh, planet, over the Pacific. Given this configuration, they'd continued to move towards Agena for the first half of their orbit, slowing their rate of approach slightly as they reached the apogee. At the halfway mark, as they passed it, their rate of closure would begin to accelerate as they moved back towards their perigee. At the end of one orbit, they would be able to adjust their orbit to, and therefore their expected rates of closure, to start making their approach more accurate. Of course, at this point, even with a rendezvous radar, the Agena, was, which was 2,000 kilometers away, was entirely undetectable to Armstrong and Scott on orbit. 
all of their guidance information would be provided by the telemetry that was being fed to mission control. So even though they would do the flying, which really consisted of relatively short bursts of the OAM system, MCC would be providing the parameters for those burns and monitoring the effects. At the end of one orbit, it looked like they were closing nicely, but maybe a bit slower than was required. So Armstrong did a small retrograde burn at the perigee to lower their apogee a little and speed up the rate of closure. The crew did notice that they seemed to be having a small issue ending the burn cleanly. There was a bit of residual thrust at the end of the burn that made it difficult to evaluate the effect of the burn accurately. This wasn't a significant issue because in the end, the next burn would be based on the trajectory of the two spacecraft over the next orbit, rather than on any predictions that were made based on the burn. But maybe it was an indication that all was not quite right with their OAM system. Uh, it was certainly not serious enough to require more investigation, at least not in the middle of the rendezvous operation. Now, one lesson that had been learned by the Gemini 6A crew was that it was very easy to get caught up in the rendezvous process, even though much of the time consisted of looking out the window for telltale indications of the target, or watching the instruments, or getting updates from the ground. None of these things really required a lot of attention, but given the nature and novelty of the task, they had prevented Shira and Stafford from doing pretty much anything else, including eating, for six hours during the rendezvous. Now, the crew had noted post-flight that this had been a mistake because when the actual work of station keeping had started, they were tired, thirsty, and hungry, and they really didn't have time to eat. So Armstrong and Scott made a point of preparing and eating a meal in between the various rendezvous burns. They would find, as almost every astronaut has, that those simple tasks, which require literally no thought or effort in 1G, require a lot more time and attention than they would have believed when they have to be done in 0G in a cramped cockpit. Midway through the second orbit, at the apogee of the orbit, it looked like they had more than made up for their slow start on the first orbit, so the ground asked for a burn to push the second perigee slightly higher, and thus slow the rate of approach. So, Armstrong accelerated the spacecraft by 15 meters per second. This actually pushed what had been their perigee, now over Africa, to be high enough to, to be their new apogee, meaning that the rate of closure would continue to decrease as they completed the second half of their second orbit. Once again, there was significant uh, residual thrust at the end of the burn, which again was an anomaly, but not one that threatened the operation. It was noted, but not investigated. The next maneuver was actually not performed at the perigee. Instead, it was performed at what was called the node point in the orbit. So this was the point where Gemini's orbit plane intersected with Agena's orbit plane. Um, to understand that, you have to remember that uh, Agena actually launched one orbit earlier than Gemini. So their orbit planes were not actually the same because by the time Agena had come overhead of the Kennedy Space Center after its first orbit, um, its orbit would have precessed probably by around 15 degrees or so. So when Gemini was following behind Agena, it was not actually on the same track over the ground. Now, this wasn't a problem in the early part of the rendezvous, but it would become an issue as they closed the distance. So it was time for the Gemini orbit plane to be adjusted to match Agena's. 
Now, the place to make this kind of adjustment is when those two planes intersect. Now, for any two orbits around a planet, no matter how misaligned they are, there will always be two points in space where the orbits intersect, because they both have to go around the middle of the planet. These points are called the node points. A node point of the Gemini and Agena orbits was over the Pacific Ocean at this point, and about a quarter orbit after Apogee. At this point, Armstrong swung the spacecraft sideways and performed an out-of-plane burn to shift Gemini's orbit to match Agena's. He added about 8 meters per second. He completed the burn, but then a few minutes later the ground asked him to add just a bit more, maybe half a meters per second. Once again, the OAM system seemed to be behaving, um, seemed to be having a hard time providing completely accurate burns. And once again, the issue was noted, but not investigated further. Since now the procedure was moving from catch-up phase to the phase where the crew on orbit could actually see their target on radar. The target duly appeared on radar almost exactly when it was expected to. The Westinghouse engineers had predicted the absolute maximum acquisition range to be about 350 kilometers, and it actually appeared at 330. Now it was time to move from the initial uh, catch-up phase of rendezvous into the second phase of closing with the target using radar until it was in visual range. At the now apogee of the second orbit uh, over Africa, Armstrong performed a substantial burn that basically um, circularized their orbit at about 28 kilometers below the Agena. Um, the crew gained visual acquisition on the Agena at about 140 kilometers away, which was around halfway through the next orbit. By the start of orbit four, they had reached the point where they could begin their final approach. Um, they determined this point by sighting on the target, and when Agena was about 10 degrees above the horizon above them, they started a series of firings to raise their orbit and then kill the relative velocity between the two spacecraft. Half an hour later, over the western Pacific, they were stationary, with respect to Agena, at a range of about 46 meters. The second successful rendezvous between spacecraft was officially on the books. The crew spent the next half hour inspecting the Agena and making sure that everything appeared to be ready for the final capstone of the six-and-a-half-hour process when they would finally dock with the Agena spacecraft. The last message they received from Mission Control in Houston as they passed out of range of the Tananarive relay site was that the ground uh, was a little concerned about Agena because they were having some difficulty verifying the commands that had been uplinked to it to prepare for the eventual docked yaw maneuver. And this was a maneuver where, after docking, the crew would use the Agena's attitude control system to turn the whole docked spacecraft. At any rate, the ground was clearly feeling that the junior partner in this joint exercise might not be up to the task, so um, Jim Lovell, the Capcom in Houston, had advised the crew on orbit that, quote, if you run into trouble and the attitude control system in the Agena goes wild, just uh, turn it off and take control with the spacecraft. With this warning ringing in their ears, the crew continued to inspect the Agena, uh, part of this procedure actually included inspecting an instrument panel that was mounted on the outside of the Agena near the docking port. This instrument panel was mounted in such a way that the astronauts in the Gemini capsule could see the lights on it. It could be used not only in preparation for docking, but once docked, the astronauts would be able to check that those indications uh, were correct against um, the signals they were receiving directly from the Agena. 
Eventually, over the Central Pacific, uh, Armstrong announced his intention to begin the docking process, and the Capcom aboard the Rose Knot gave the mission control concurrence. The actual act of docking was, in the way of these things, and likely pretty anticlimactic. Uh, the approach speed was barely uh, perceptible at 8 centimeters per second, and the docking itself probably consisted of a small bump followed by the mechanical sounds of the latching mechanism being tripped. In fact, it took a moment for everyone to realize what had happened. Uh, but when Armstrong reported, quote, flight, we are docked. It's uh, really a smoothie, no noticeable oscillations at all, unquote. NASA had completed another first in the history of human spaceflight by accomplishing the first joining of two man-made objects in orbit. But the flight was not over by a long shot, and at this point things began to happen pretty quickly. And to understand those events, we need to take a step back and look at where the spacecraft crew and ground controllers were and how they got there. Now, physically, the combined spacecraft was over the western half of the middle of the Pacific Ocean. They were over the Rose Knot, um, but were rapidly heading towards the horizon where they'd no longer be in contact with the ground. Uh, their next contact with the ground would be Coastal Sentry, another ship, uh, east of Okinawa, but that wouldn't be for a little while. Uh, during this time, they would not have contact with the ground, and crucially, the ground would have no telemetry to assist the crew with any issues. As well, even over coastal sentry, they would not have the full support of the ground because they would not be in direct contact with Houston. And again, crucially, they would not have the direct support of the Agena team since they didn't have anybody at the remote sites. Mentally, we also need to note that the crew was at the end of a pretty long day at this point. They'd been in orbit for more than six hours, and they would have been up for at least four hours before that. During the entire time, they'd have been under one pretty significant form of stress or another. Um, I mean, this was a fairly normal day in space for astronauts. What was maybe a little less normal was that the flight controllers were also coming to the end of a very long day. At this point, they were probably about 10 hours into a planned 12-hour shift. If MCC had been manned for the normal three-shift cycle, a brand new team of controllers would have just arrived a couple of hours ago, and there would be fresh eyes and ears available. Finally, crucially, the entire team had been conditioned over the past few weeks and the past few hours to have doubts about the Agena spacecraft. Leaving aside its performance in October, it had still provided ample opportunities for concern amongst the flight control team and the crew on orbit. First of all, as we noted, the flight control team for Gina was new, at least new to NASA mission control, so they were not really fully integrated into the flight control team. Importantly, uh, the Agena team did not provide any personnel to the remote sites, as I've said. So, for instance, the controllers on the ships in the Pacific did not have any first-hand experience with Agena. Also, the launch had been a little sporty, in that its initial boost had been a little off course, and although Agena's main engine had established it pretty much where it was supposed to be, and the mission control team still remembered those early moments. Then there had been the issue of having difficulty varying, verifying the command uplink to the Agena as MCC prepared for the docking. Now, Lovell's comments to Armstrong at the end of the Tanan Reef Pass did not speak of a great deal of confidence in Agena, which now had been pretty uh, clearly passed on to the crew. I mean, remember, Capcoms do not say anything to the crew on orbit that has not been approved by the flight director. So 
um, Lovell's concern represented really an official concern in the Mission Control Center. Uh, finally, let's remember that the crew on orbit and NASA as a whole were actually entering a brand new operational environment. In effect, they were now flying a spacecraft they'd never actually flown before. They had plenty of experience by now with the Gemini capsule, and the Agena engineers probably knew the overall Agena vehicle pretty well, although not this particular incarnation of it. But no one had actually flown the spacecraft that was formed by joining the two, and at this point it was one spacecraft. So the crew were very much alone in a brand new spacecraft with systems they weren't sure they trusted, about to try things they'd never tried before. Uh, I mean, if you could have engraved an invitation to Mr. Murphy um, and his law to show up, uh, you probably could not have done a better job. And so, of course, the problems uh, started immediately, although they were benign enough, um, and they always are, right? It started with the yaw maneuver, uh, the one the ground had had trouble verifying on the Agena. The idea was that Dave Scott would use the Agena's attitude control system to turn the whole stack 90 degrees to the right, which he did, and which it did, just in about the time that it was supposed to take. But then, when he checked his instruments, he discovered that the stack not only yawed 90 degrees, but it rolled 30 degrees as well. This was not expected. I say checked his instruments because this kind of attitude change um, actually wasn't readily detectable while looking outside the cockpit. So the only reason he realized the roll had happened was by looking uh, at the uh, navigation ball in the cockpit because it was night outside and there weren't any external references. He also checked Armstrong's instruments to double check and they showed the same 30 degree roll. More to the point though, the roll was actually slowly increasing all the time. Um, he switched to the Gemini's OAM system and carefully canceled the roll motion, and then it came back. Guessing that the problem was, must be coming from Agena, he, following Lovell's advice, turned off the Agena's attitude control system. Now, only the Gemini thrusters should have been connected to the controls. And that seemed to fix the problem, and Armstrong began realigning the vehicle to where it was supposed to be. And then the roll came back, and then it started to accelerate. Um, this was alarming, not only because it was uncommanded, but because the resulting rotation and the amount of thruster firings that were needed to constantly correct it uh, was putting a lot more stress on the docking joint than had been expected, at least at this part in the flight. Uh, at this point in the flight, the astronauts were supposed to be performing some pretty gentle maneuvers that were specifically designed to put increasing loads on the joint between the two spacecraft, but very light loads, which would gradually increase in order to gain confidence in that docking interface. Now the crew was literally wrestling for control, and the weak point in this wrestling match seemed to be the joint between the two spacecraft. Or it would have been if they were using Gemini's thrusters to wrestle with the thrusters on Agena. Armstrong had taken over control of the spacecraft and was continuing to try to bring it under control. While he did that, Scott was actually photographing the interface between the two capsules, fearful that it might be under too much stress. He was also trying to suggest ideas for how to stop the roll. They tried cycling all of the switches that might make a difference. They tried all the control options they could think of. And nothing worked. Nothing in any simulation they had done in training gave them any clues about what was going on. And they were still out of communication with the ground. 
And then Dave Scott noticed that the OAM's thruster fuel levels were down to 30%. Uh, they had to do something dramatic at this point. Convinced that the Agena was the source of the trouble, they decided to undock. An emergency undock was a maneuver they had practiced in training, so it wasn't a difficult task. When Armstrong had the stack more or less stabilized, at least momentarily, Scott unlatched the docking adapter and Armstrong accelerated backwards away from Agena. They were free of the Agena spacecraft. And then things got worse. A lot worse. As the crew later reported, quote, and then we really took off, unquote, the Gemini capsule's rate of rotation began to increase alarmingly. It was now clear that Agena was not the problem at all had never been the problem at all. In fact, the extra inertia of Agena had been the only thing keeping the Gemini capsule from spinning out of control, which now it was rapidly starting to do. In short order, the spacecraft was rotating at a rate of one revolution per second. At that rate, the crew was not only having difficulty controlling the spacecraft, they were having serious difficulty reading dials and meters and even throwing switches. They were also getting dizzy and even disoriented. The problem was rapidly rising to the level of serious crisis. If the rotation could not be stopped, the safety of the crew was in real danger at this point. At this point, the Gemini capsule finally came into the communication range of Coastal Sentry, and the ground controllers began their routine status checks, expecting to find a joint vehicle coasting slowly through space. But they couldn't get clean readings when they expected to. And this was, of course because the spacecraft and its directional antennas were spinning madly, and so the ground couldn't connect with the high data rate telemetry. The ground called to ask if um, there was some issue, <laughs> to be told fairly emphatically that there certainly was. The crew reported, um, with frankly a calmness that only a test pilot would have been able to muster, uh, that they believed they had an RCS system that was firing and could not be stopped. Either that, or they had a hand controller that had failed and was stuck on. Either way, the problem was getting worse and it needed to be fixed right now. While the ground tried to assimilate these facts and make some sense out of the ratty data that they were getting from the spinning spacecraft, the crew on orbit came to a conclusion that there was really only one option left, and that was the re-entry control system. In other words, they realized that uh, they could shut off the on-orbit maneuvering system completely, and switched their controls over to the re-entry control thrusters, which were completely different than the maneuvering thrusters. Um, and they also had their own fuel tanks. But those fuel tanks were very limited, and they really only contained enough fuel for one set of re-entry maneuvers and a little bit more. It was a small enough reserve that there was pretty much an explicit flight, flight rule that if for any reason the re-entry jets were used for any purpose, the flight had to effectively be terminated as soon as possible, after that event. Once the re-entry jets were used, the crew was coming home, whether anyone liked it or not. This undoubtedly was the reason that the crew had waited this long before trying this option, but now there were no other options left, and the ground had no additional suggestions. They were still trying to catch up, so the crew pulled the plug. They pulled the plug on the OAMS system, and effectively on the rest of the flight of Gemini 8. And the good news was that it worked. As soon as the OAMS uh, was shut down, the acceleration stopped, and Armstrong found that the spacecraft now responded to his hand controller inputs, and he had it stabilized and right side up in fairly short order. With a bit of judicious testing, turning the maneuvering jets back on one at a time, 
they were able to determine that the problem was with the number eight thruster and it was failed on, meaning that if it was enabled, it just started firing and couldn't be stopped. Regardless of having diagnosed the problem, though, the flight of Gemini 8 was effectively over. There was no way to avoid the flight rule that once the retro system had been used, it was time to come home. And while MCC was still kind of trying to catch up, that was one decision they had been able to make. Now, you have to appreciate that in MCC, in Houston, um, the last time they'd had any direct communication with the crew had been over the uh, east coast of Africa uh, when they were still lining up for docking. Uh, that pass had also been very short and had concluded included only voice communications, no telemetry. The main issue at that time had been the difficulty in verifying the Agena Yaw maneuver upload. After that, with the Gemini over the southern Indian Ocean and then the southern Pacific, communications was limited to talking to the two ships, Rose Knot and Coastal Sentry. These ships didn't provide direct voice links with MCC, although ships could talk to both the capsule and MCC. Houston could not hear and could not speak to the astronauts directly, and they also obviously had no telemetry. While over the Rose Knot, Gemini had performed the docking, and the last that MCC had heard they'd completed a more or less perfect docking maneuver. Then Gemini had gone over the horizon and had not come back into communication until it was picked up by Coastal Sentry, east of Okinawa. By the time Coastal Sentry picked them up, they were separated from Agena and spinning out of control. MCC could do more than listen to the play-by-play -play provided by the Coastal Sentry Capcom as the crew finally managed to gain control of their spacecraft by using a not insignificant portion of their re-entry system fuel. John Hodge and his team rapidly assessed the situation. He came to the conclusion that Gemini did need to come home. Further, they, he came to the conclusion that it had to happen on this orbit, well, the next orbit, because the only available landing opportunity for the remainder of the day was on that orbit. If they didn't come home right now, they'd be stuck with a compromised spacecraft on orbit, for another 16 hours, um, where they had less coverage often than they did now. Uh, it was really no choice. Hodge made a second decision, since Gene Kranz and his team were already in mission control, having arrived a little early to watch the docking, Hodge asked Kranz to accelerate the shift change and get his team into their seats, since they were the team that had planned to handle the re-entry and had done all the re-entry simulations. It's actually a testament to the training and culture of mission control that the shift handover and emergency re-entry planning went effectively without incident and pretty much without remark, despite the atmosphere uh, that must have been in MCC at the time. By the time Gemini came into view uh, from the site in Hawaii, the next uh, contact point, uh, a site which did provide full connection to mission control, the crew were told to begin preparations for re-entry. Meanwhile, the flight controllers were busily checking available landing sites and running their trajectory calculations. Uh, by the time the crew came back over Coastal Sentry on the next orbit, the re-entry procedures had been developed, checked, rechecked, and reviewed. Um, they would have the crew begin the re-entry over Central Africa, and it would deposit them in the Western Pacific, reasonably close to the place where they were now, actually. The main concern of the crew at that point uh, seemed to be that they might be deposited at some remote site and that it would take hours or even days for recovery teams to find them. Um, they need not have worried. Um, to some extent, uh, this represents the degree to which the crew still 
didn't fully appreciate the skill and expertise of the flight control team. Any flight controller working in the trench in MCC at this time would have died of shame if he didn't know A, where his spacecraft was, and B, where it was expected to land, you know, within a few nautical miles. In fact, uh, when Gemini 8 splashed down, there was already a rescue aircraft overhead, and paradivers were in the water with rafts and safety equipment 15 minutes later. And the USS Mason, the closest uh, U.S. Navy ship, a destroyer, arrived three hours later. Well, um, there's still a bit more to talk about uh, with Gemini 8. We've gotten the Gemini 8 crew uh, home to Aqua Firma, as it was referred to, but there's still quite a bit more to say about the flight and its aftermath, uh, including actually the very successful flight of the Agena spacecraft that continued on after Gemini had come home. But um, there's enough to talk about that I think that that's going to have to wait for next time, because um, that's about all the time that we have for today. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again soon. Come on, let's keep the chatter down.